We're back in 1 Corinthians. We took a little break last week. We're back in it, and we'll be back in uh, at 1 Corinthians more than likely till Advent. Let me read chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will, do- will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for your word. I thank, I'm thankful every week that we get to be in this book for this book, that you wrote this to this church and we can learn so much and glean so much wisdom and guidance from what this church was going through. And I pray this morning that we would allow ourselves to be put under uh, your word and that we would trust and believe that these are your words and that they have authority and they have power in our lives. And I pray that you would give us wisdom to understand your word this morning. You would give us um, the ability to believe it and then ability to apply it when we leave um, this place today. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Paul here is, two weeks ago in in chapter 5, Paul was dealing with the matter of church discipline and really how do we keep one another accountable to live the life that God has called us to live. That was ultimately what that chapter was about that we looked at. And today we find ourselves in uh, this passage where Paul is addressing grievances and conflicts. And this passage really, at the heart of it, has everything to do with interpersonal relationships, right? So this is a very applicable passage. Even though maybe the situation's not going to feel like something that maybe resonates with you immediately, the, the underneath what Paul is driving at is very important for all of us as we try to do church as a family. Now, I would say just in my experience of, of, of ministry over 15 years or, or more that that one of the most common points of disunity in the body of Christ is how we handle conflict. It's how we handle conflict. Um, Notice I didn't say that if there was conflict, but how we actually handle it. That one of the things we just drill into couples that we do premarital counseling for, uh, Nicole and I do, we say, when we talk about conflict, we say that, that having conflict is not bad. It's actually a good thing. When you have conflict in a marriage, it actually means you're, 
you're living life close together. You're being vulnerable with one another. You're actually voicing when you have concerns, when you've been hurt. There's a transparency that is happening when you have conflict, and that's a good thing. It all comes down to how are you doing conflict? Are we doing conflict in a healthy way? And this is what Paul, you're going to see as we get through this passage, Paul is assuming there's conflict, right? Like he's not, he's not saying, hey, try not to have conflict or, hey, avoid conflict in a way. No, he's saying, basically saying, here's how you handle it. When it happens, here's how you handle it. And I think when we're talking about conflict, and, and a lot of this comes out of the, the marriage counseling we've done, is typically there are um, two primary ways someone can approach conflicts. The, the more, uh, say, common way is to avoid conflict. I would say the majority of us by nature are conflict avoiders, right? Like who, who wants to have a conflict, right? Like who wants to run headlong into conflict and, and really go through that pain that is often associated with conflict to get to the other side where things are better? We just, we want to avoid the pain that often comes with conflict. I think of um, the, the Office is one of my favorite um, uh, TV shows of all time, and, and the classic uh, kind of just fingernails on a chalkboard awkward episode is the dinner party episode. Those of you who know The Office, remember the dinner party episode, right? It's like a train wreck of conflict not being handled well. And you have people there at this dinner party, and the host of the dinner, dinner party, they're just, it's, it's bad. It's really bad, and they're just doing this in front of all their guests, and it is hard to watch. This is conflict not handled well, and it makes us not want to even do it. It makes us just want to like, turn the TV off when we're watching that episode. Many of you watched the, or tried to watch the presidential debate a few weeks ago. Like, so I was sitting to my, with, with Nicole, my wife, on the couch, and we turned it on, about to watch it. And after five minutes, she's like, I can't do this. Like, she's an Enneagram 9. She doesn't like conflict. She wants to keep the peace all the time. And she just picked up her laptop and started working and just buried her head in the laptop. She could not watch the debate. And again, it was a debate, right? Built into the word debate is conflict, right? There's going to be conflict in a debate. But we know those of you watched it, like neither side handled that very well. And it turned into just, a, just kind of a, a hard thing to watch. And it made us feel awkward. So you have people who run from conflict, but you also have people on the other side that enjoy conflict. Now, I think this is a minority, but I do think there are people who just love to get in there and mix it up. Just, just a, a good conflict a day is exactly what these people need, and that can be a good thing. But the, the negative side of that, this person often wants to win the conflict. Right? They want to win the conflict. They're aggressive. The point of the conflict is, is to win, right? And so they'll, they'll put all they have into winning the conflict and making sure they're right. And so you have the avoiders of conflict, which isn't good. You have the overaggressive people in conflict who are trying to win, and that's not good. So I think all of us in some sense probably could use some work when it comes to conflict and interpersonal relationships. So let's, let's jump into this text and um, kind of see what Paul is saying and how he's addressing the church. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Okay, so that language is strong there, right? Paul's coming out saying, how dare you? Like, how dare you go outside the church to handle your grievances? Why are you handling the grievances amongst the unrighteous instead of handling those things amongst the saints? 
And we talked about saints a few weeks ago, that this was um, not, not, a, not a word meaning perfection and not a saint as, as the Catholic Church means. That it's more of just someone who's been redeemed, someone who has the Holy Spirit, someone who's been saved by Jesus. That's when the Bible says saint, that's what um, the scriptures are referring to, okay? Let's look at verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? So here's what was happening, right? It's, it's fairly easy to follow. Like the, the, as the Corinthians were having problems within the church, grievances, it's called, um, they were taking those grievances and really not handling them internally, it seems. Like they were immediately jumping to a kind of the, the external judicial system that was in place at the time to try to handle these conflicts, right? And, and so, um, and the one thing to know about the court system in this day and age, it was different than our court system. Oftentimes, and you'll, you'll read backgrounds and commentaries that explain this, but that the court system in the Roman Empire was often used uh, primarily by rich people, wealthy people, powerful people to kind of get over on middle class or poor people. It was kind of used as a tool to kind of puff up their status and to try to keep people who shouldn't be in their status down. So the, the rich people or the people who had access to it could just go anytime they wanted to and kind of stick it to people who weren't in the same class as them. And what Paul is trying to say, really two things here. Number one, like the people who were running the courts are, are not believers. And so you're taking matters inside the church and trying to have them fixed or worked out by, by uh, people outside the church. And, he, and this is a common thing that we've seen in the, the first Corinthian church, right? Or Corinthian church, right? The, they're, they're taking things from the world and they're bringing them into the church and they're kind of doing things the way the world would do. And this is no different. They would go into these court cases and they would just assume this is how you handle grievances. This is how you handle disagreements because this is what they did before they became to know Jesus. So that's one thing Paul's saying is you're, you're trying to get unrighteous to handle something that is meant to be handled inside the church. Um, and the other thing, Paul is, is always concerned, and you can see it in this chapter, that he's concerned about what the watching world is seeing. He wants to, he want, Christians are supposed to be a foretaste or a preview or a, an appetizer, if you will, of the kingdom to come. When Jesus sets up his kingdom, the way Christians treat one another is supposed to be a preview to the watching world about the way the kingdom of Christ operates. So Paul said, you're doing the same things the world does. You're doing the same things that people outside the church do, and you're compromising your witness. You're not honoring God in the way you're handling these grievances, and people are watching you. People are seeing how you're doing this, and it's not glorifying God. It's actually bringing damage to the name of God. He also has this phrase about judgment of angels, and this is kind of a weird phrase, and we don't have time to get into it, but most commentators think that when he's saying that, that we're going to partake in the judgment, he's, it's not saying that we're actually going to be on the judgment seat or we're not going to be judges. Be, but because of our union with Christ, because we're united to him, when Jesus comes back in some 
spiritual way, we're going to be involved in the judgment through the judging of Jesus, right? And so, and, and so that's what he's saying here. Basically, we're, because of our union with Christ, we're going to be able to, to judge those things. But it's really Jesus judging those. But because we're united with him, we're a part of that judgment. And really through this whole passage, we're going to see Paul reminding the Corinthians of their identity. He's, we've, he's already got into it by saying, you're, you're righteous, you're saints, you're the church, you're, you're, you're in God's family. This is why he's using the brother language, right? And you can say brother or sister there, right? He's using this language to remind them that they are, they're, they're gospel people. They've been saved. They're part of this new community called the church, and they need to behave like it. Let's look at verse 5. I say this to your shame. So he's, he's kind of leading with that, right? He's like, okay, I'm, I'm about to, what I'm about to say, I'm, I'm intentionally trying to shame you. And this is sarcasm again coming from Paul. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. So he's saying that, are, are you, is there really no one among you? And remember, they're the ones that have been puffed up with wisdom, as from the previous chapters in Corinthians. They're, they're like really proud of how wise they are and how smart and knowledgeable they are. So he's kind of putting a knife in it there a little bit. He's saying, so, so really there's no one wise enough among you to, to handle these things that you have to go outside the church to handle them? And so what, what he's saying here, and, and again, is a reminder of their identity, who they are, but also implicit in this is um, this idea of, of, of who is the church? What is the church about? And there are people, in Paul's mind, there are people, he's, and he's expecting the church to understand, there are people who are in the church and people who are not in the church. There are people who are following Jesus and people who aren't following Jesus. So implicit in this teaching is this idea of really church membership. Church membership. Like, for Paul to be able to say this, to, to remind them and to say, hey, those of you inside the church, those of you outside the church, and how he writes this, and this would have been a little bit easier in, in that, or a lot easier in that time, because in the city of Corinth, there was probably one church. So it had been very clear who was a believer and who wasn't a believer. This was early on when the gospel was taking root in the church. It's a little bit harder to do now because you have many different churches, and some churches uh, do church membership, some churches don't. So if Paul was writing this letter to us, this is one of the reasons why we want to take church membership seriously, because we want to figure out, hey, who, who is a covenant member who's committed to this body, and how can we actually practice this amongst those who are saved, who are members of the church? So if we're going to live this out, I think understanding who's a member of the church and who is not, is really, really important. So it's kind of built into this passage, the same way it was in chapter 5, I would remind you. Let's look at verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. No one wants a lawsuit, right? I mean, that's, that's even from, from an unbelieving standpoint, lawsuits aren't good. You talk to anybody who's been through a lawsuit, it's, it's, it's a pain, it's expensive, it takes a lot of emotional energy, it's really, really hard. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Right? So why, why put up with a lawsuit? Why just take the defrauding? Right? Why not just, just walk into that a little bit and not go to the court? Now, I want to say this as a caveat. There are some issues that the church should not be handling. There are some issues that the churches get in trouble with trying to handle internally. Things like embezzlement abuse, 
things with uh, legal ramifications, those things should be kind of pushed outside to um, the actual authorities, the judicial system that is in um, our country. So I think that the, the type of uh, things that Paul has in mind, and he even talks about, he mentions defrauding here. This is probably grievances associated with money, grievances associated with paying people back, uh, smaller grievances that don't necessarily need to be taken outside of the church. So he's saying, y'all handle it together, get in the same room, talk like brothers, talk like sisters, work things out. Bring a mediator in from the body who's another believer and have them mediate for you. That's fine too, but handle this internally. So these are probably the kinds of issues that Paul is talking about. Um, and, and one of the reasons, again, one of the reasons why Paul is so adamant about this is that they are supposed to be a church family. They're supposed to provide a picture for what the future kingdom will look like. And they are compromising and dishonoring God by how they are behaving. Now remember, this is, Paul is appealing to their identity. We're going to see this here in a second. But Paul is appealing to their identity to get them to understand you don't need to do this. You need to handle things internally. And so here's what will happen. Here's why identity is so important. If you're trying to get your identity from your behavior, anything you do, this could be anything, but in, their, in, in this context, it was kind of winning an argument, getting a leg up, getting, getting what's mine, sticking up for my rights, right? So if you are building your identity on that, you have to be right. You have to be good. You have to be great. So you're going to do things constantly to build yourself up to make yourself look better, to make yourself feel better because your identity is, is banking on it. It's everything if, if you've made it an issue of identity. And what you'll also do in relationships, especially if, it, if there's an interpersonal thing going on like a conflict, you'll do everything possible to put the other person down. You'll make them seem less than, or you'll make them seem um, um, less smart than you in a certain area, or less good at you, better than you in a certain area, especially if it's an area that you're finding your identity in. You'll do anything to win in this moment because it's a part of your identity. Building your identity on something other than Jesus is really fragile, and you have to protect it, and you have to stand up for it. And so, again, the context of an argument or a disagreement, you're going to have to fight to win that argument to, to, to continue to build up your identity. You can't let the other person win. You can't give ground if you're trying to protect your identity. Or, on the flip side, you're just going to avoid things, right? You're, you're, you're trying to uh, um, feel a certain way. You're trying to appear a certain way. So you're going to choose not to even deal with the conflict. You're just going to kind of sweep things under the rug. It'll get better. I don't want to deal with it because you have an identity you're trying to protect. Let's look at verse 9. Let's keep going. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay, so again, he's going back to identity here. He's thinking there's righteous and there's unrighteous. And when we think about the term unrighteous or righteous either way, um, the scriptures usually have two things that the, that word's addressing. It's, there's a passive element and an active element. The passive element is the, uh, what a theological term, imputed righteousness that we get in Jesus, meaning that when Jesus went to the cross for us, died for us, rose again for us, his righteousness was given to us, was imputed to us, right? We get the righteousness of Christ, which allows us to stand before God and be accepted by God. 
This is called passive righteousness because we had nothing to do with it. This was Jesus' work on our behalf, and when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That's the passive righteousness. The active righteousness is us acting like we're saved, actually living the lifestyle of a follower of Jesus, being righteous, being holy. So when you see this word unrighteous or righteous, you have to think there are both of these kind of meanings tied up in this word, and both of them are at play here. So here's a list. He's going to give nine things, and these are big identity statements of, um, of people who are unrighteous. Again, verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he says, do not be deceived. And he says, neither the sexually immoral. Some translations say fornicators, right? This is kind of a broad brush word for anything that is sexually um, immoral as it relates to the scriptures, right? Anything outside the, the, the bounds of what scripture will lay out for a healthy sexuality. And the next one's idolaters, right? Idolaters was more formal in that day, but it really means putting, worshiping anything more than God. That's an idolater. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Paul's going to get into that in, in Corinthians. Nor adulterers. This is someone who, who has sexual relations of any kind outside of marriage, nor men who practice homosexuality. Okay, in, in some, um, or the, the original um, English translations have two words to describe that. Um, it says homosexuals and sodomites. And in the original Greek, there's two words. It's one for the, the passive um, person in the relationship and one for the active person in the homosexual relationship. It has both words there in the original language to cover both parties. Then he says thieves nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers. And this is someone, we don't use that word a lot, but it's really someone who uses foul language. It's kind of a word that deals with, with bad language. The last one, swindlers. This is like schemers or scammers, someone who's always trying to, to, to get an edge and maybe take something that's not theirs, kind of um, dirty in that way. And then he finishes, will inherit the kingdom of God or will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? So these these. These types of people, again, these are identities, right? These aren't people necessarily who, who um, do these things occasionally. These are identity statements, right? Um, this is what characterized the people of Corinth before they were saved. And he's saying that people who practice these things, people who um, have a lifestyle built upon these things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul is saying that you aren't like that anymore. The whole point of reading this list, he's reminding them of who they used to be. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you, past tense, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is past tense. He's saying this is who you were. You're not like that anymore. You're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Your lifestyle shouldn't be characterized by any of these things or really anything else. That list isn't necessarily exhaustive. I think Paul just wrote out the nine and moved on, right? Or maybe these were the things he was noticing in the Corinthian church, and that's why he wrote these things. But this could be a lot of different things, right? This could be status. It could be wealth. It could be approval. It could be consumerism, right? Like being, being just the kind of person that consumes everything the world has to offer. You bring that into the church and become a consumer inside the church. Instead of someone who lays down their life and serves others, you become the kind of person that just consumes the things of the church and, and maybe it's not a part of the actual church family. And what, you, what we see here is Paul 
kind of grammatically doing the indicative and imperative thing, right? He's saying the indicative is who you are. It's static. This is, this is the people you are, and the imperative is the command. It's the go and do. He's saying because you are in the family of God, because you are followers of Jesus, because you are new creations, live differently. There's the imperative, right? So don't be the kind of person who's characterized by these things if you are new creations. And here's the issue, right? Like if we, if we define ourselves by what we do, if we get our identity by what we do, we're going to come in here every week and be down because we're primarily sinners, right? If you, if you build your identity on what you do, you are going to fail. We all fall short every week. So you're going to come in here with your head down, feeling shameful like you're a failure. That's going to be your primary identity. And what do you think God thinks of someone who has faith who, who he sent his son to die for, who's coming in with his head up. Like if my, my son was walking around with his head down and thought he was just a terrible person all the time, I'd be constantly, hey, buddy, pick your head up. What's wrong? And smiling at it. Hey, what's going on? Well, if he's, well I, just, I just messed up here, and I didn't do this here, and I'm a terrible person. Hey, buddy, I love you. I love you anyway. You know, we'll get through that. We'll work through that. We'll, 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 we'll figure out how to do that better next time. But remember, I love you. And you can feel hopeful in that. You can feel proud that I love you. And here's what I think of you as a father. And this is what God speaks over us. So we, if we try to build our identity off of how, what we do, then we are going to always feel like failures. Or if we're having a really good stretch, we're going to feel really great about ourselves and be really self-righteous kind of pharisaical in that way, right? We're going to feel really good if we're building ourselves off of our identity and we're doing a really good job in that particular moment. And see, here's, let's go back to the conflict piece, right? So interpersonal conflict, how, the, how we handle that. If you're looking to your behavior to save you, if you're looking to your identity for everything, you are going to need to be right. You're not going to be able to give in. You're always going to have to dig in your heels. You're going to have to be the one that's right in all the conflict. You can't admit you've done something wrong. And again, it, it, th- those of you who are married, I think, really get this, right? And, and I think I've seen this in, in, in all marriages that I've been around, right? When you're having conflict issues, typically one or both parties is having trouble seeing what they need to own in the particular argument. There's either defensiveness, hey, I'm not like that, or hey, don't, don't, you know, don't, don't bring that to me, right? Like, there's this defensive posture, there's this, I don't, I'm not going to own anything in this situation, or there's a, you know, blame shifting, this is your issue, this is what happened with you, and you turn the attention on to other people, right? There's this ability that we have to kind of prop up our identity, even with people that we love, and that we love deeply, like our spouses, this happens a lot in the context of marriage. Happens a lot in the context of marriage. So how does this look, right? Let's talk about it practically. How does this look? Um, Jesus gives us a great um, scenario, really, in Matthew 18. And what he does in Matthew 18, he helps us um, understand how to do conflict well. And what he would say in Matthew, what he does say in Matthew 18 is, hey, if you have conflict with someone, take a person, or actually, first off, first step, go to that person directly. So for you conflict avoiders, go to, he's saying go to the person and tell them what's wrong. 
Right? Tell them you have an issue. Tell them what you're feeling. Tell them how you're viewing the relationship in that moment. And then listen. And if that person denies it, disagrees with you, says, I think you're wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. Then you go away. And then you bring another person, a third party in to talk to the person. right? Because you need someone else there that maybe... Tr- it's best if they know both of you, know your personalities, know the situation as best as possible to actually mediate. And then you say the same thing with a third party there. And it gives you a chance to talk through things. And here's what often happens in this, right? So one person in that particular party or in that particular uh, situation is probably not owning what they really need to own, Okay. So for example, like, uh, let's take uh, ben, and, ben and Jay, right? So let's just say I have an issue with Jay. And, 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 and I go to Jay, and I'm kind of saying, hey, Jay, here's some things that uh, I, I'm struggling with, that I, and, and I'm really wanting for some an acknowledgement, right? That's kind of what I'm wanting, an acknowledgement of hurt, some for, forgiveness. And then Jay doesn't respond how I want him to respond. So then I go grab Ben. It's like, hey, Ben, here's the situation. I want to go. I want to bring you. And I want you just to be there, ask questions or whatever. I take Ben, and then I kind of, I tell Jay. Jay responds back in front of Ben. And then Ben may affirm what I'm saying. Or Ben may look at me and say, you know what, Jeremy, I think maybe you're the one that is seeing this wrong. Or maybe I don't think you're owning what you're part of this that's making Jay respond that way. So I think both of you have some things that you need to talk about here. And, and so there, there you go. Now you're getting some, somewhere because both people have, have been made aware of their issues and kind of can come and actually talk through some things with a third party there. Okay? Oftentimes, again, because we're try, we want to be right, we want to win, we don't want to appear wrong, we can actually have blind spots when it comes to conflict. Okay, so I think this is how we are to walk into conflict as followers of Jesus. Now, here, I have a list, and this is a list. You can go ahead and put that on the screen, Danny. It's a list of, um, it, it's a process, and this comes from a book called Peacemakers. It's basically a book all about biblical, bi- how, to, um, how to approach um, conflict biblically, right? And I think this is a great process. It's a very laid out process. Um, straight process for dealing with conflict. So if you know you have something against someone, you've prayed about it, and it's not going away, and I'm not saying it takes months to find this out. Like I'm talking days, maybe week, to, to kind of figure out you have someone against some, someone. You need to connect with them, right? Don't avoid it, right? This, hopefully it's clear from this morning, from this passage we just talked about with Jesus and with Paul, don't avoid the conflict. But after you connect with the person and you're actually about to talk through it, here's the order. Affirm the relationship. So if it's back to my situation with Jay, hey man, I love you as a brother. I appreciate you. I, I, I love being your friend. And this is why, like, I, I, this is bothering me so much. I really have some things I just need to, to lay out before you. Okay, that's affirming the relationship, right? It's not, hey, you're such a this. or I, you, you, I can't believe, it's not starting off that way. It's affirming the relationship. Then define the problem and stick to it, right? Don't chase rabbits. Don't go five years in the past to like bring up something to bolster your argument. Um, it's define the problem and stick with it. Number three, get the log out of your own eye. 
right? This is probably work that should be, should be done before you come into that conversation. But in that moment, you've defined the problem. The other person hasn't, hasn't said anything yet. You define the problem, and then you own what you need to own. And I guarantee if two sinners are in conflict, even if it's 1%, you have something to own. No matter if it is, whatever it is, one person's never 100% at fault if there are two sinners in a conflict. There's always 1% you can own. So address that. Talk about that. Say, this is what I can own in this. Hey, I think I was probably a little too harsh. I think I was probably a little bit like this, right? That's taking the log out of your own eye. Again, another parable teaching of Jesus. Number four, now you listen. Listen carefully. Take notes if you need to. Don't think of the next thing you're going to say. Just listen. Forgive, right? Hear it all out. Forgive, right? Like whatever they say, forgive. And then number six, propose a solution or a way forward. Now, if you get to four and five, this is where if the, if the other person is just completely, and I've found that this doesn't happen very often, but the other person is like, eh, I don't think I did anything wrong, nothing wrong. Then you may have to say, you listen and say, okay, uh, number six there, I think maybe we should bring someone else in this because I just, I don't feel like this is a resolution for me. You bring someone else in and that's where you go get a bin in that scenario that I laid out and go bring someone in and go through the process again with, with a third party there. Now, here's how we can do this. If we go back to Jesus, again, let's go back to the gospel. Think of the person of Jesus, like what he did. His whole life was, in a sense, a conflict between the rulers and the authorities, whether it was the Pharisees, the, the Jewish religious leaders, or it was the Romans. He was in a conflict his whole three years of ministry. And what did he do? He continued to lay his life down. He laid his rights down. He laid his pride down. He laid even his power down in that moment to be able to do the work set out before him. He is our model. He is our example. He endured wrong. He absorbed the blows. He took the punishment. He took everything upon him so that we can be the kind of people in all areas of life, but especially in conflict, that can walk into conflict and absorb the blows not have to defend ourselves every time, not have to prove our rights or where we're right and where another person's wrong. We can, we can own the part we can own and be able to speak directly to the parts that we maybe think the other person need to own. We can bear the sin of others. That, that, in that process, when we ask for forgiveness, right, that's really, really hard in a moment to grant forgiveness to someone when they've really hurt you. But part of bearing those wrongs, part of bearing that weight is being able to say, I forgive you. I'm going to take the sin, the, the, the weight that I have upon me, the damage, the consequences that your sin has done, and I'm going to take those because I can do that because of Jesus. I can do that because I have a new identity. I can do that because I have the power of the Holy Spirit to help me through those things. I want to finish by reading uh, Hebrews 12, 2. I think this is a great passage just to think about as we handle interpersonal conflict especially in the church, in the church family, and how we do this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, which we all know, hopefully, know what the cross, what all that entailed. Despising the shame, right? A horrific, shameful thing that he had to go through, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. One of the aspects of one of the roles Jesus has right now that I don't know if we talk about enough 
is he's, in, he's advocating on our behalf next to God, right? He's there next to God, advocating for us before God. And one of the problems in conflict that we have is we're trying to, we're trying to be so defensive, we act like we don't have an advocate. So we have to go over the top and be defensive. We have to shift to blame. We have to make the other person feel bad, make the other person feel like it's their fault. And if we believe that we have an advocate, Jesus is standing before the Father because we have the righteousness of Jesus saying, they're mine, they're mine. I, I bought them. I bought them with a price. And he's, advocate, he's advocating before God right now, every moment of the day. If you are in Christ and have faith and believe in him, he is advocating to God, before God, before us, for all of us, especially in the middle of an argument. We need to remember this and trust that we have an advocate so we don't have to win. We don't have to, to fight. We can say what we need to say. We can expect justice. We can expect, hey, this other person, that's part of being the body, right? That's part of growing. That's part of helping each other thrive and grow up in our faith is to have these kind of conflicts. But we don't have to, to, to pretend like we're all right and that person's all wrong, right? We can be gentle in our conflict. We can be humble in our conflict because of who Jesus is and because of our, our identity in him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage, even a passage that's a, a, a little bit um, out of context maybe for us, because I don't know how many of us um, can just take someone to court anytime we have a grievance, but I, I think the heart of this is how we handle interpersonal conflict and disagreement, and when we feel like we've been wronged, we feel like something's been done to us. I pray you would help us be a, a courageous people, that your spirit would help us when we have an issue with someone. Maybe it's the church at large. Maybe it's with leadership. Maybe it's with somebody in our missional community. I pray you would give us the courage to go talk to that person and not be afraid and not feel like the world's going to end if we have to go and tell someone they've hurt us. I pray that this would be something that's, that, that's common that we do often here as a family, as brothers and sisters in Jesus. But this is so hard. It's so hard. So we need your help. We need your grace. We need to be reminded that we have an advocate, that we're sons and daughters of the king, that we have an inheritance waiting for us in, in the future. So we don't have to be afraid of conflict. And we don't have to, 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 to look for every conflict and try to win every conflict. We can go into conflict acknowledging that we've probably brought something into that conflict. And we can take the log of our own eye, extend forgiveness, and that our relationships can be stronger as a result of actually going through this conflict. We love you. We need you. Help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.